This is the Oanda Podcast, brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Hello, this is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where each week we take on the big financial and business headlines from around the world. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me are two of Oanda's senior market analysts, Craig Erlam in London and Ed Moyer in New York. Hello to both of you. Let's kick off with Brexit, if we can. Talks between the UK and the EU are now at possibly their diciest, both sides saying that a no-deal Brexit is the most likely outcome. Um, Craig, first to you, because we've been speaking about these um, issues over many weeks, over many months, over many years. Um, Have you changed your view that a no-deal Brexit is unlikely. I haven't, and I think I'm just stubborn. It, it, it's quite clear that that it appears more likely, and it's quite clear that the markets need to reflect what could be. It's very much just a personal view uh, in terms of I don't believe it will happen because I don't believe it's in anyone's interest, both politically and economically, uh, for no deal to be reached. But like I say, it's, it, it's, I think it's a positive move that the markets are starting to re- reflect an increased probability of it happening because that's effectively what these markets have to do. They have to reflect the probability uh, of these events occurring. And up until a week ago, that wasn't the case. One week ago, the pound traded at 135 against the US dollar. That is that is staggering. That was that, that, that was the highest level in years. Uh, the, so that was a, a staggering move. So I think it's a positive move that we've seen that pull back to around 132, starting to uh, price in that possibility. And also heading into a weekend when the markets uh, aren't traded, uh, I think we could potentially see a little bit more of that going in uh, into the close today because with the talk that they could be making a firm decision on Sunday. Although, again, I wouldn't be surprised if on Sunday they say that they're going to make a really, really firm decision by Wednesday. So it's we always have to take these deadlines almost with a pinch, pinch of salt. What is interesting is we've always talked about these negotiations as being a decision won't be made until a minute to midnight. But I don't think any of us really thought that that would actually be literally a minute to midnight, probably on the 31st of December. It has gone on longer than maybe we envisaged, given what still needs to be achieved and it's quite clear that things need to be accelerated now the same old issues remaining um i think the biggest blow this week actually was those talks between boris johnson and ursula von der leyen so the negotiators obviously are working within their mandate so it was no surprise that they got to a point where there wasn't no more maneuverability and that it was going to have to be a political concession that overcame the impasse but the fact that that didn't happen so late in the day i think it was the biggest blow for these markets and was the biggest thing this week that changed people's perception on the probability of outcomes and, and I think that's why we've seen the biggest change and we're seeing a lot more uh, public rhetoric now from both sides about what needs to be done and what's what's standing in the way and I think we're just going to hear so much more of this now over the next few days. It has, like I said, it hasn't really changed my view for the fundamental reason, for the same fundamental reasons, really, that that's existed for quite some time. And that's that, for me, uh, it's just not in anyone's interest at the best of times for a no-deal Brexit to happen. But in a world where we are living through a pandemic, the people's economies, uh, countries' economies have been severely uh, impacted as a result. I don't think a no-deal Brexit ha- helps. But also in, 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 in a more global environment, when we are seeing, um, when we have been through four years where the US has become more distant in terms of uh, its friendliness towards the EU, when we have seen things like the rise 
rise of populism, etc. I don't think it's in the EU's or the UK's interest to uh, to create any friction and tension that a no-deal Brexit would inevitably bring. So for all those reasons, I'm still firmly of the belief that a deal will be reached, but I'm not surprised to see the balance of probabilities in the markets change dramatically this week. Ed, do the ups and downs of these negotiations make the headlines in the US? They, they are. It's not a. It's not the first thing you'll read about. And I think right now, for for many, uh, Brexit has produced <laughs> many headaches. I, I think we've seen the uh, timelines continue to get pushed back. And uh, right right now, I think there's a, at least on my side of the pond, uh, great expectations that. Um, because, as Craig pointed out, we're in the middle of a pandemic, because the economy is very vulnerable, I, I think that a no-deal Brexit is just really um, extremely unlikely because the, the, the economy can't really take another hit. Um, and I think there's strong optimism that um, even if uh, negotiations um, just can't have any breakthroughs, I think the two sides will most likely be open to a temporary arrangement to extend that transition. I think there's there's a lot of investors too that, uh, you know, I think right now they, they've been trying to add on to their Brexit hedges. And uh, I think though that still there's a lot of optimism that eventually, you know, once we can finally have uh, this uh, trade deal um, ironed out and it might take a lot longer than we want. Uh, and, uh, and as the UK uh, gets on the other side of the virus, I, I think there's strong optimism that UK assets are going to be very attractive at some point um, early next year. Hypothetically, if there was a no deal, if that minute to midnight becomes midnight without a deal, where would the money flow? Well, I think I think the first thing that we'd see is that the pound will come under severe pressure, uh, and I, I do think you're looking at cable now, for example, and you can see that we're trading around 133s. I really wouldn't be surprised to see a move even as far back as 125 against the US dollar in the in the in the aftermath of a No Deal Brexit. Just the sheer shock factor, the uncertainty factor, um, on top of the fact that the UK has already been one of the most impacted economies in the Western world from this coronavirus, the impact that it's had on the services sector, um, and obviously the severity of the first wave alone, let alone the second, um, I think the UK economy looks vulnerable to investors right now. And therefore, I do think the knee-jerk reaction would be extremely negative as far as the pound is concerned. Um, it may not be quite as negative as what we saw, for example, on referendum night uh, four and a half years ago, when we saw a 10% drop on the day. But I do think my move kind of back towards 125 um, at least would is what we would probably see. But again, it's always kind of a bit of a shot in the dark thing with this. You kind of throw in darts blindly at a dartboard. I think most people agree uh, that we would see a very negative impact in terms of the currency. But you are going to see um, predictions ranging from probably between 115 through to kind of late 120s and, and, and everything in between because it is kind of shot in the dark. But I think everyone would be in agreement or most people would be in agreement that you are going to see a severe hit to the currency. And that's generally the first port of call uh, when you're looking at what the impact's going to be. Then you can look at more domestic companies, those more uh, that do a lot of trade with EU, they're going to face significant frictions, they're going to face significant delays, uh, tariff hikes. Obviously, this is in the worst case no deal scenario where there isn't a no deal contingency agreed, a temporary um, solution to some of the most significant problems between the two if they decide to go down that path, which is obviously always then creates the kind of buffer in between. I think, though, if we do get that bare bones deal by the by year end, uh, uh, there, there's still a, a lot of potential upside here for the British pound. And uh, I, I think 135 has proven to be uh, some, some good 
resistance, but uh, I think there's a lot of people that are, you know, still eyeing a bigger move uh, at some point towards that 140 level, and that's going to be uh, where things should get very interesting. I'd like to move now to U.S. Congress, where we still have seen no real progress on um, a bipartisan stimulus deal for those people and businesses affected by the pandemic. This has obviously been going on for months now. We've been talking about it since the summer. Are you optimistic that anything will get decided, should we say, um, in 2020? My optimism is it's uh, fading. <laughs> I think right now what you, you, you've seen um, this week, really, uh, GOP leaders were driving two different uh, proposals. I, I think that uh, the, the, the main objection that we're getting is from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and, and he is not blinking. Uh, he's not bending at all as far as providing any type of aid to state and local governments. And and, and his uh, demand for liability protections is, a, is a, a key sticking point for Democrats that they're not really budging on. I think everyone agrees upon the dollar figure, but as far as allocating the money, uh, that's where the big um, uh, disagreements are. And uh, for, the, for the most part, too, um, we even have uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin provide another option, and, and that one isn't really uh, gaining much traction with the, the Senate Majority Leader. So, so I, th I think that what we're seeing is the U.S. economy right now is, is extremely vulnerable. And uh, I, I think when we take a look at, um, you know, where we are um, with the stimulus uh, negotiations, uh, you know, the, the big focus right now is on, you know, the, the expiring of all these uh, emergency uh, benefits that um, right now are currently supporting 13 million Americans. That's roughly 8% of the workforce. Uh, and, and that's going to go away. So, so I think there, the, the political capital to, to that will, you know, pretty much end any Senator that is up for reelection at the 2022 elections uh, is, is really going to drive the momentum to get something done. I, I think that you're, you're going to see that uh, the, you know, the, these negotiations will probably go to the end of next week. Uh, and, and there's going to be tremendous pressure to get something done. And I, I think uh, both sides can't afford to, to let that happen. And I, I, I think that, you know, the expectations are still that something will get passed and whether or not it, it gets signed off by the president's another question. But I think there is optimism that you're going to have um, uh, some type of deal reached and, and, and that should be very positive for um, risky assets. How does this feed into the economy that uh, the new president, Joe Biden, will be inheriting when he's inaugurated come January? Well, I think right now the expectations are that this, whatever deal that gets uh, ironed out uh, over these next few weeks is, is going to be just the beginning. Um, I, I think what we're pretty much um, bracing for is that a Biden administration is going to um, really have its fo have his focus on you know, ending the coronavirus, and then you're going to probably see um, a stronger push for lockdowns, uh, restrictive measures that are really going to stop the spread. I think right now the the, the virus spread is is um, entering its its worst worst stage in, in the U.S. And right now we're seeing deaths at um, at a terrible clip where it's it's providing um, some of the worst days in, in American history as far as fatalities. And and right now you're probably going to see that. Um, 
Biden is going to try to deliver a lot more stimulus. A lot of that is going to be dependent upon the Georgia Senate runoff races in, on January 5th. And depending on uh, if, if the Democrats somehow pull off the upset and, and they're able to win both elections, um, you know, the, the, they'll be able to provide, you know, substantial aid to the economy and to the to Americans um, when he takes office in, in early January. So so I think you're probably going to have many people be extremely um, uh, focused on the Senate runoff races. And that really will dictate, you know, whether or not Biden pushes another trillion or possibly significantly greater um, in, in um, after January 20th when he takes office. Craig, the EU has managed to pass its seven-year budget for 2021 onwards. Um, So this budget was delayed because of Hungary and Poland vetoing it over um, clauses relating to the rule of law. We've passed that now. What's happening and how is this significant? Well, it's significant because it's just another compromise um, that we needed before the end of the year. Obviously, this is the budget which comes into effect from next year. And the fact that Hungary and Poland were previously blocking it due to uh, rule of law um, clauses uh, was going to be problematic. It wasn't going to stop everything in its tracks. There would have been uh, an emergency budget, but it obviously would have been far uh, far smaller uh, covering emergency measures than the current budget provides for. And obviously with Hungary and Poland being uh, substantial net beneficiaries of the budget, it wouldn't have worked in their favour on that sense. The recovery fund, you imagine they would have found another mechanism with which to enforce it, and they had hinted at that, which again removed some of the leverage from Hungary and Poland. So it seems that the compromise that was found between Hungary, Hungary and Poland and um, the current head, um, the rotating head, uh, Angela Merkel, was the best of both worlds in many ways. I don't think the I don't think Hungary and Poland came out of this as well as they hoped to, but I think it was the only compromise they really had available to them. It effectively delays um, any ability for for punitive action um, against either country for around 12 months until this has gone to the European Court of Justice. We have Viktor Orban who's facing an election in 2022, so that buys him time uh, on that sense. So politically, it's probably a bit of a victory as far as he's concerned. But the most important thing is that the budget gets through. And I've said for a few weeks now, December really feels like a month of compromise. We had the OPEC plus compromise last week. We've had the EU compromise with regards to the budget this week. And there's still a couple of weeks to go uh, until the end of the year. We need a Brexit compromise. We need a, a compromise uh, on Congress. If we in Congress on Capitol Hill, if we can get all of these four compromises through, then it really has been quite a phenomenal December, and hopefully, it means that 2021 is looking up. Where, where does the ECB fit into this? Um, presumably, Christine Lagarde will be welcoming the budget being passed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the ECB's action on Thursday was still necessary. Uh, the, the the increase of the pandemic emergency purchase program by 500 uh, billion euros, taking it to around 1.8 trillion. Although it was quite interesting that she did stress that that doesn't mean it's going to be used. It just means that the envelope is there should it be warranted. And I think that's a really important tool as far as the EU is concerned. And it's kind of falls into line with what we've seen with regards to, say, um, w- when we see rates being targeted, a yield curve control as it's otherwise called, this idea that we will act if we need to, but we're effectively telling the markets this is where you need to be. It negates the need, hopefully, for actual action. It kind of, again, comes back to Mario Draghi's uh, comment back in 2013, uh, we'll do whatever it takes. It was the most 
powerful policy tool that the ECB's had, but it didn't actually require any uh, fundamental action because the markets believed what was said. Uh, so I think that was that's an important part of this uh, PEP program is we've seen this big increase, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be any uh, any action as far as the ECB is going to be concerned. Things like the TLTR03 program and the Peltros is probably going to be more significant in terms of providing that actual real policy support. Uh, but I think Christine Lagarde is going to welcome uh, these changes. It, um, it, I think it also gives, uh, when the money is raised, it gives the uh, ECB another another instrument which they can purchase as part of these programmes and potentially alleviates the pressure with regards to what kind of limits they're hitting as part of the other bond buying programmes as well. So I think it's something that she's going to welcome. And I think it's also something that she's been pushing for for some time, uh, which is not just governments to do more, which is this, this is an example of, but it's the first move towards... Um, towards debt sharing and I think that's uh, a positive move as far as the euro area itself is concerned so I think again Christine Lagarde's going to view the actions that we've seen over the course of this week as a massive step forward as far as the currency union is concerned. Ed can we talk to you now about the Airbnb IPO these are remarkable numbers going on here so um, an opening share price of around 44 to 50 dollars a closing share price of 144 dollars what are investors seeing in this stock at the moment well the IPO unicorn uh, parade is is here <laughs> I, I think that uh, you know we, we had two successful IPOs DoorDash and Airbnb and uh, there, there's just so much interest right now um, on Wall Street people are trying to find the next Fang stocks and and right now there's there's a lot of optimism that um, uh, you're, you're, you're gonna have um, insane valuations uh this upcoming ipo season and and right now there there's there's a, a lot of belief that uh you know the these next uh, type of uh, technology stocks that are that are going to uh you know you know transform you know how people go about uh traveling and 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 uh, I, I think you, you have so much interest um right now widespread from not just uh institutional traders but um definitely from the robin hood investor the new uh millennial trader that has been um becoming much more interested in trading throughout this pandemic there, there's just widespread interest and I, I think right now what we're seeing is that there's a, a lot of people that are um, heavily interested in, in um, buying into these new companies. And, and uh, I think it's, it's providing a lot more excitement. And, and that's why we're probably, probably seeing uh, the NASDAQ um, somewhat outperform, even though, you know, this has been relatively a risk off week. Craig, DoorDash, I can understand. It's a food delivery company. Obviously, so many of us stuck at home at the moment. But Airbnb, there's a lot of optimism, presumably, that travel and holidays will return to normal fairly quickly and that we'll actually be making use of the services of a firm like Airbnb. Yeah, absolutely. And you wonder as well, I mean, I'm not sure how much of this is going to be factored in, but you do wonder what kind of an impact this entire pandemic has had on the hospitality industry, whether there has been um, certain businesses which have struggled, whereas you, you look at the kind of premise of the Airbnb, which is people in, in many ways, in many in many circumstances, renting out spare properties or their own homes, etc. Uh, and you wonder whether Airbnb could actually be one of the companies that maybe benefits um, as a result uh, or, or benefit or, or is less hard hit maybe uh, compared to some of these others. Again, that's probably just speculative at this point, but I think the most important point with uh, with all of this is the fact that people are going to be desperate to go on holiday once again. People are going to be want to be desperate to break out these bubbles which we've 
uh, been forced to exist within for the course of 2020. And it's, there's not going to be a long term impact on the travel and tourism industry. Uh, that that industry that survives throughout this pandemic. So I think people are really looking very much far into the future uh, and seeing that things can return to normal and that Airbnb does have a future. So uh, and therefore I think that's the that. But it, it does also come back to what Ed was saying as well with with these IPOs. Um, we've seen so many examples of these IPOs now that just explode to begin with, uh, and it will be interesting to kind of monitor the share price now over the next not just couple of weeks but really over the next few months to see where it kind of stabilizes. Ed, a big factor in uh, what Craig was initially saying there about people returning to normal is going to be vaccines. We've had some bad news. AstraZeneca saying that uh, they're unlikely to have their vaccine finished until the end of next year now. And the drug trials in Australia also not producing something that uh, will be released anytime soon. Has that had any impact at all on markets? Uh, very much so. I think right now what we've seen is the, the market has uh, shifted to uh, vaccine execution. And uh, anytime we have uh, anything that delays the, the, the release of uh, vaccinations across the globe, uh, that's going to be very negative to the outlook. I think there's a, a strong optimism that, you know, we're, we're going to see a return to the pre-pandemic life. Um, but uh, anything that disrupts that is, is really going to weigh on the short-term outlook. Um, and, and that's probably going to remain the case, I, I think, um, throughout, throughout most of next year. Before we wrap up, Ed, what are we looking ahead to next week? Uh, the, the main event for me is, is going to be the Fed. I think right now um, this is going to be a critical meeting. It's the first meeting um, after the election and after the election results. And, and I think what we're seeing um, is uh, policymakers, you know, were touting the importance for Congress to deliver fiscal aid. That's never happened. And, uh, you know, the Fed is the only game in town right now. And I think right now you're probably going to see that they're going to be um, ready to adopt yield curve control. I think the strong rise that we've seen in Treasury yields over the past few weeks has has really uh, uh, cemented that view. And, and, and right now we're probably going to see that they're going to have to um, um, act because there's a lot more weakness in the economy uh, than where we were at the last policy meeting. And uh, I think you're going to have them uh, possibly increase their purchases. So so there's there's a, a lot of expectations that um, the Fed is going to do more. They're going to follow the ECB and and likely you're probably going to see that uh, the Fed is, is, is going to to remain ultra accommodative uh, going forward. And, and when we do have the Biden administration come in, I think there's strong optimism that uh, former Fed Chair Janet Yellen will become the next Treasury Secretary, and, and she's likely to work uh, nicely in coordination with the, the Fed in providing more accommodation going forward. So I think that's going to be the big focus for uh, the main event for next week. Um, I, I think we will also see uh, everyone, you know, closely follow these uh, daily COVID updates in the U.S., daily deaths, you know, they're, they're hitting records on a daily basis and the hospitalizations are, are really starting to test capacities in certain key areas. And uh, I think the likelihood of more restrictive measures and lockdowns are, are, are likely to happen. And that's going to probably um, really uh, start to weigh on appetite. Um, as far as economic data, um, I think we're going to get uh, a lot of big big um, releases. Um, I think uh, retail sales is going to be key. It's going to show uh, a drop in November, which, you know, typically as you enter the holiday buying season, um, November, you know, normally is, is a rather a strong month. 
and we're also going to get the flash PMI readings, which is going to start to show some slowdown and weakness in, in uh, both manufacturing and the services sector. Um, so that's going to be very important for the U.S. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a trading week filled with a wrath of central bank rate decisions. Um, I, I think that for, for most of the ones I'm going to mention now, um, the expectations is for policy to, to really uh, remain in wait and see mode. Um, the, the Bank of England is not really going to, I think, uh, um, announce anything um, except if we see uh, Brexit <laughs> force them to act, uh, that could uh, that could change. Um, Norway will likely keep their benchmark interest rate unchanged. The Czech Republic, SNB, likely to you know, provide no surprises there. And uh, I think overall, you know, you're going to see that uh, investors are, are, are going to um, also want to see exactly, you know, how does Congress uh, evolve their negotiations in the U.S. as far as that you know, fiscal relief bill. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, next week is going to be a, a critical moment there, but I think um, you'll, you'll probably see that um, go down to the wire and towards the latter part of the week. I think one final thing to end on as well is, it, it is I, I just to stress that Sunday being the point at which the, they currently expect to make a firm uh, decision on Brexit is terrible times, t- terrible timing for the markets, given that the markets aren't open at this point. So I think that just to really stress again that there is uh, the weekend risk that it's now coming with this. If there is a firm announcement, especially if it's a firm no deal announcement, there could be a lot of action um, in these markets as far as the open on Monday morning is concerned. Craig Earlham, thank you for that. Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda in London, and before him, Ed Moyer, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda in New York. This is the Oanda Market Insights podcast. It's available anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Nick Howard. Thank you for joining me. Join us again next week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.